This Sunday, we begin a new series together uh, through 1 John. And uh, really, 1 John is a simple book. You could certainly do it in one sitting. It wouldn't be a hard task, right? Five chapters to kind of pour through and pour over. This will take us uh, to about June to go through uh, the book of 1 John, and we'll probably just roll right into Second and Third John after that. Um, but like all of our studies, again, we're going to go through this book. Um, we'll, we'll look at almost every verse, I think, in, in context, right? So here at State Street, uh, we are still committed to this expository preaching. Um, so as we preach through books of the Bible, there's times we take breaks and we'll do topical series. But it's always, again, going to be rooted in the scriptures. So what does that mean? Um, we're not going to do like a, a, a series on marriage and try to find every single passage that I can make work for me. Um, that's not a good way to read your Bible. That's not a good way to study your Bible. You want to look at a text and say, what is this saying in its original context? What's it say about God? What's it say about us? And how do we work that into the application part of it? And so we're going to work through First John. We're going to ask just, what does this text say, both originally and then to today? What, who is the writer What's the audience? Uh, what's the context time frame? Again, what does the passage tell us about uh, God? Where is Jesus in all of this? And then how does it apply to us today? Those are really just simple ways that you can read your Bible. We try to encourage you the last couple of weeks talking about this vision. Uh, we want to continue to be a church family rooted in the scriptures. And so as you read your Bible, your, your thoughts should be thinking, man, where is, what's revealed about God in this? And so even try to think about like Joshua, right? He marched around the wall of Jericho, and Jericho walls fall down. Maybe from that story is a little bit familiar, maybe from your, your past. Well, that story is not about Jericho. It's not about Joshua, and it's not about the walls falling down. That story is about an all-powerful God, and when he instructs his people, his people are to respond in obedience. Right? It's not about a feel-good story that says, oh, look how good of a leader Joshua is. Joshua had nothing to do with these walls falling down. He was just obedient to God and God's leading. But often we read text and we're like, wow, that feels, makes me feel nice and good. It, just make sure we're reading accurately, right? And that's asking, where is God in this? Where is Jesus in that story? Right? And how does it apply to us today? And all those are important questions. They reveal important information. And these are the type of questions, I think, that allow us to understand more of the heart of God and also allow us to grow in maturity. So if you call yourself a Christian today, right, you've trusted in Christ Jesus and authentically for the hope of your salvation, the forgiveness of your sins, then there is the expectation on me and on you to mature in Christ. But that is a very clear expectation throughout the, throughout the New Testament for sure, that our role is maturity. And I even submitted the thoughts of another friend of mine uh, who just said, look, our goal is not this perpetual, like one day we'll get there, one day we'll get there, one day we'll get there. But our goal is to get to be mature as fast as we possibly can in Christ and to stay there as long as we can. I actually agree with that. Because my kids can mature in certain aspects of life, and that's not necessarily age-dependent. Right? In fact, we've watched culture really start to downplay what a, a kid is capable of. And so there's this, a great book, I recommend it for uh, kind of that teenage, early teenage years and through on, called uh, Do Hard Things. And it's really written from the perspective of, man, God calls you to do hard things, but it's a great reminder for us uh, as, as adults as well that we're called to do hard things, to trust that God is going to do hard things through us as well. And so what do we expect out of this study of 1 John? My hope is this, 
that we would be eagerly expecting what God is going to graciously reveal to us. That, that's what I hope our heart is when we come in together every Sunday. Like, we're expectant. Um, it, it's not just, you know, it's not just a tradition or a habit. Your alarm goes off differently on Sunday mornings, and so you get up and you kind of start your, your rhythm. But no, our, my hope is that you come in here expectingly, an expectancy. And so um, when we do that, we expect God to be present. We expect Him to be working. Um, we expect really the Spirit to accomplish just unbelievable things. I, I think that perspective shift is actually very important for us. But we, if we just come in, just kind of going through motions, I don't know if God's going to just come in and just be like, hey, let's get at this. I'm excited. Um, he might still do that, and that's his grace if he chooses to do so. Right, let me pray, and we're going to jump right in here. God, thank you for your word. Um, and as I ask again and again, I pray that the, the truth of your word, that your text here specifically would bury itself deep in our lives. This is always relevant. It is always true. And it is always applicable to our lives. And we are such a fickle people. And even, Lord, I recognize that, that my life has a shelf life to it. It will cease. My words will be empty at some point, if not just forgotten. But your word will go on forever. So bury your word deep within us this morning. And it's truth in your name. Amen. Let's just get some background information. I think this is helpful. So a lot of our, our Sunday uh, portion right now is going to be just background of 1 John. All right? So I, I would love even just for some interaction, okay? Um, this is not just a monologue. This is going to be a little bit of dialogue taking place. It's also strategic to help you stay awake a little bit, all right? Um, and it gets cold. When I start preaching, it gets cold. Have you noticed that? It happens every week. I'm freezing right now, but it will get warmer, I promise you. It'll come back on. All right. Who wrote the book? It's John. How do you know that? <laughs> because the name of the book is John, okay? But what tells you? It's the first letter of John. Okay, maybe that's how your Bible reads it. What tells you, though? John doesn't start out, all right, like Paul starts a lot of his letters. He says, I, Paul, write to you. There, there's no reference in here to John as the author. Um, but if we think it's John, and your Bible says John, and my Bible says John, we probably don't think about that much. We just say, okay, great, it's John. So which John is this? What, what John? There's lots of Johns in the Bible. Is this John the Baptist? One of the disciples, John? Is that what you're going to say, Norman? Uh, so listen, let's be honest with you. Norman, he's a seasoned veteran right? That's a nice way to say something else. He's the vintage one here. So we just go to him, okay? We go to him we, for affirmation. Yeah, John. He is the John. John the Apostle, also known as John the Beloved. Also the author of what? Thank you, the Gospel of John. How do you know that? There's no exact writing here that says, did you get my first writing? Did you check that one out yet? How do you know? tells me you just trust what your Bible says, right? Which is not a bad thing, but we want to be thinkers, right? We're supposed to be thinkers. So it's, we know this. There's some reasons here. The style and vocabulary are similar between the Gospel of John and 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, all right? Someone willing to look up for me, John chapter 1, verse 1. Not 1 John, but John chapter 1, verse 1. Chris, do you have that? 
Yep, it's like a, the sword drill. When you're, remember the speed sword drill when you're younger? John chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to ask you to read it out loud when you get there. Okay, does that sound familiar to some of you? In the beginning was the Word, right? The Word was God, the Word was God. Now someone, just look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. How does that start out? Someone can read it. Do we see any similarities here? Yeah. Both of them start the exact same way, right? The exact same focus. That which was from the beginning, right? And then previously in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? These are just literary features. These are things that we look at and we say, hey, there's some similarity here that's going across from the Gospel of John to the First John and continues to roll itself out. Even the vocabulary in these two writings is similar, so, for example, John, different than other gospel writers, he uses the word believe in the gospel of John roughly a hundred times. How many times do you think he used the word faith? Any guesses? Zero. He uses believe, but he doesn't use faith at all. In 1 John, we see believe referenced to or used nine times in verbal form, and faith only used once. So, again, similarities, where the other gospel writers use, use faith a lot more than that. So we're looking at all these things, and we're saying, this seems to be the same gospel writer, John, who has penned 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. This John sat next to Jesus, right, the Last Supper. This John was at the foot of the cross at Jesus' crucifixion. This is the John that Jesus looked at and said, take care of my mother, my earthly mother Mary. This is the same John who ran with Peter and saw the empty tomb. This is the same John, part of the inner circle with Christ. See, all of this makes him what? Qualified. This all makes him highly qualified to write about his experience and what it means to truly know Jesus. And as I, just, as I honestly, as I prepared and just kind of worked through all this information myself, man, this was kind of mind-blowing to me. Right, all the scripture we know is God-breathed, it's, a, it's heavenly inspired. But when we begin to consider kind of the, the resume that John has here, sitting next to Christ at the Last Supper, being at the foot of the cross, Jesus on the cross saying, look, take my mom, care for her. Right? He's got firsthand living experience. It seemed like in my preparation even, my heart and my mind seem to get pricked a little bit harder to just listen in a little bit deeper now. It's believed, just what did this John do after Jesus ascended back into heaven? It's understood and believed that John, he went on to be a faithful pastor. There's no huge church plant network, right? Uh, that exists because John planted churches and went out. But no, it, it seems he went to be a faithful pastor, a shepherd who cared for his sheep. And, and this is reflected all throughout his writing. While John's writing this portion, Gnosticism is a rising kind of thought process in the prevalent culture. What is Gnosticism? It's, it's a religious mysticism that really pirated Christian motives to propagate uh, an understanding of salvation based on really just exocentric knowledge 
So Gnosticism, what does all that mean, right? Put a heightened value on just knowledge, cognitive assent for salvation. According to this view, redemption is through affirming the divine light already in the human soul. Salvation comes from affirming this divine light that you and I already have coexisting within us, not through repentance of sin and faith in Christ's death to bring about spiritual rebirth. John is, is writing in the era where that thought process is becoming prominent. It's, it's infiltrated its way into the local church. And really, again, it's starting to draw some away. Yes, in a broad manner, John is writing to Christians, right, followers of Jesus, who have witnessed an exodus of people from the faith in Christ. It's thought that John wrote this probably no later than 80, 90, just different people reference him later on, Polycarp and Papias being some of them. Lastly, John is writing to address believers. So John is writing to address people who have claimed to trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's writing, it seems, to people he knows, people he understands, people he cares for. And he writes with three themes. And you're going to see these themes woven and reproduced throughout these five chapters of 1 John. True doctrine obedient living, and fervent devotion. True doctrine, obedient living, and fervent devotion. These themes, again, will, will show themselves in various ways throughout the writings of 1 John. See, John believed that to live in Christ is to live under true doctrine, to respond in obedient devotion, and to be resilient in fervent devotion to him. And that's different than how we live our lives. Let me tell you how I think we often live our lives. We respond with fickle emotion. And over time, that emotion wanes, and so we, res- we kind of begin to process. And then we dive into true thought that leads us to a semi-true conviction. Almost the exact opposite of the process that he lays out for us. I mean this, I don't think a lot of times that we respond because we wrestle through something mentally. And so you might hear the word of theological and true doctrine, and you're saying listen, that is not for me. I did not go to seminary. I'm not interested in the Bible college thing. Pass on on theology and doctrine. I'm going to tell you why that's a a poor and lackluster viewpoint for a Christian. If you believe that scripture is true, if you believe it is what's called inerrant, then you believe in the inerrancy of scripture. Right? That, That that's a doctrinal stance you just took. Right? And you believe that scripture is breathed out by God, that it is literally he inspired human writers, so it carries weight now, not only for life, but for all eternity. And so when things go bad in your life, you go to it for a source of hope. You're reminding yourself that God is good because scripture says so. Well, now you have some theological convictions. God is good. So you actually have an established doctrine in theology, whether you think it that way or not, how you view God and what you're choosing to establish that on is your personal doctrine. Now, very often what happens is, I think the church says we don't want to do that, and so we develop a doctrine that is much more personal guided than it is scriptural guided. And so we hear things like, my God would never say that. Well, my God would never do that. But what is this God that you have, and where did it come from, and what did you base it upon? 
often our theology and our doctrine gets formulated by all sorts of things. Okay, it stems out of the scriptures. John's conviction is that the theme of true doctrine, true understanding of who God is, who we are, who his son is, how his spirit's working, what is the call of the gospel in the life of the believer, all of life stems out of true doctrine. And I like that. My prayer is this, as we begin this series, that John's words would lead us to a greater understanding of who God is. Right? Thinkers, that we would be thinkers. You know, if you know this or not, but this church culture of New England is deep-seated in thinking. We've got guys like Jonathan Edwards that come from New England and others. We've, We've got Ivy League schools that were established theoretically on Christian principles. Right? Man, we, we, we are a place, New England is a place known for its thinking, right? Just last week, Chris went on to a conference in Rhode Island, just kind of all stemmed around, man, how are we to approach just a moral decay in our culture? Right? That's, a, that's, a, that's a thought conversation. And out of our thinking flows what? A devotion. And my hope is it's a devotion of living that's deeply rooted in gospel identity and sees our lives lived out as servant missionaries. Kind of with all that backdrop in mind, okay? Let's look at just four verses today. So 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is God's word. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Four simple verses. Four verses rich and deep in content. As we mentioned earlier, this starts out the same way as John's gospel writing started out, the beginning. And John's hope right here, his desire, is not to start out in the beginning of their memory, in the beginning of John's ministry, but no, but for John to recall far before that. John begins with these words and the same words in his first gospel to draw the reader's mind way back before time was even in existence. In the beginning, before life on earth was established, in the beginning, prior to your existence, this is how he starts his writing. He does not start out with a pithy statement, an emotional evoking strategy, or even a call to obedience, but rather he calls for us to bring our minds back to the very beginning, to return to a foundation of understanding. Certainly for the believer, cognitive understanding, right, what it means to trust in the identity, life, death, and resurrection of Christ is important. But an authentic saving faith is not one that only evokes the mind, but one that evokes all of us. Did you hear the words that John used here? He said, he has have heard and have seen with our eyes, have touched with our hands. Again, key that this is John, the John, who is with Jesus. So I think John's words here are foundational and they're very intentional as he talks from his firsthand experience. 
This was not an experience that was an opinion solely formed on just a classroom or cognitive understanding. But here, this Jesus, this word of life, John reminds us, is all-encompassing. Those are fascinating to me words that he uses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John recognizes the need for the follower of Jesus, for you and for me to understand that to know Jesus is to have life. And knowing Jesus is not limited to a cognitive, though that is important. It's not limited to just what we can see and touch with our own physical presence, though that is important. It's not just limited to our our heart, right, our emotional peace, kind of saying, yes, okay, that is important, though. In this declaration by John, this life was made manifest, Revealed by God the Father in his sending of Christ the Son. It was this that his doctrine and his heart and his mind and his emotion was founded. It was established. It was secure. It's in this that life for John was discovered. And so this should lead us, I think, if you just kind of process out, think this through with me, to ask the question, what is this life? What does a life in Christ truly mean? Like, how is a life that's founded and established in Jesus truly meant to be understood? Is it just eternal security, right? I mean, is it just kind of Willy Wonka, golden ticket, like, I trust in Jesus, I go to heaven. But while you're still on earth, hey, walk through the Wonka factory, drink out of the chocolate if you want to, or try the sugar plums. I don't remember whatever things are there. Okay, ride the weird train, all right? Um, is that what it's all? No. Like it's not just it. It's not just this golden ticket. Does life in Christ, does it actually change today? Like, does how I live establish a root in Christ, if that's what I claim, does it change how I live today? What about the type of person I am? Does, does it impact that? Does, does the gospel get to impact my personality, my, my likes, my tastes, my interests? I think the answer to that question, all these questions, is yes. All the things in the, in the life of the one who's trusted in Christ must be impacted. Through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, right, this is a seal of our salvation. And it is the grace of God on display because of our salvation. Our lives are impacted. So like John, I think we are to say, our minds, right, that we've seen, we've heard, our ears, our eyes, all these things are meant to be impacted by the gospel. Now there are some stories that we hear of people coming to Jesus and trusting in him for their salvation and making him Lord of their lives, and their lives are changed in a moment. And those are fascinating, aren't they? Those testimonies of these lives were, look, I mean, I was addicted deeply. And, and on that trust in Christ, there was an instant deliverance from that. Addiction is gone. Sin habits are no longer dominating. And then I believe there are just other, more normal, or just kind of what we seem to be more consistent stories. Where the work of Christ, it's a gradual process. It's a, it's a changing process. To take on godliness and the characteristics of a follower of Christ and to say no to the desires of the flesh. But I wonder, 
I wonder if sometimes we just say, yeah, just, I'm just in process, a little bit too fast. And we're not willing to say, God, I want you to take this from me right now. Please deliver this from me right now. Give me freedom right now. And we beg and we beg and we plead and we plead and we're consistent with that prayer. And just because God didn't make it happen in two days, but your Amazon order did come in two days, we think, oh, God must not be listening anymore. Look, there are times where I think God delays his answers so that we would be fervent in prayer, that we would be faithfully coming back to him. Because what am I doing if I keep coming back, right? I'm recognizing that, God, you are the one who can bring this deliverance. You are the one that is a source of hope, right? My kids come back to me over and over with the same requests constantly. And this request is the same. It's really twofold in our house. Can I play my tech or can I pick a show? It kind of circles around those themes, it seems, over and over and over. And, and, and part of wants to be very frustrated. Because I, look, I've said no. Why are we having this, this discussion? Because they see me as a gatekeeper or my wife that can change that. We could say yes. And so they ask again at the chance that, that we could say yes. Look, prayer is very similar. We may get to a point where it's like, God's just not listening, he's not listening, he's not listening. But we go back and we go back and we go back because he is the one that can bring that freedom. He is the only one that can bring that deliverance. So part of our going back and our persistence in this prayer is a continual recognizing of who God is. That's a cognitive change. The Holy Spirit is meant to impact our lives. The gospel is meant to take deep root. But what specifically does John talk about that changes when we're in Christ? Look at verse 3. It says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son jesus christ so paul tells us look of these other characteristics of these other things that you may desire change keep i believe you'd say keep praying keep seeking the lord ask him to change those things but let me tell you what changes immediately because of the gospel fellowship Fellowship, what does that mean? It means community, association, a, a joint participation. Did you catch John's words here? He is conveying that what he has seen and what he has heard and what he has experienced has impacted him. To what end? That there is fellowship. John wants us, uh, the, right, the, the recipients here, and I think God wants us as well, to know that those who trust in Christ, that we have a unique fellowship. We have a unique community. We have a unique association now. And so, yes, when we trust in Christ, many things are impacted. We're given the Holy Spirit. And he begins to work in our lives, and he begins to change us. Our desires are changed. When I say our appetites are changed, what I mean by that is the things that we want craved, they seem to become less if they're not of the things that God would want us to eat. And, and we can have some resist to that. Like, well, why would God want to change me? Am I, am I not good enough? Man, God wants what's best for you. And he wants the desires of your heart to line up with what his desires are. And so he patiently works in us. He patiently and lovingly shapes us and conforms us to the image of Christ. And one of those primary ways he, do, he does that is through fellowship with him. Our connections to other people 
and him are changed. Here we use word family a lot. We're persistently using it, at least I am. I don't know if that annoys you or if you picked up on it or not. But the word family is used a lot here at State Street to define who we are as a people or who we're called to be. A family is one that's bonded together, one that's united around something, one that has deep roots. And I'll tell you, for me, this is, does not make sense from a, uh, an earthly standpoint. Okay, like my parents called me last night, and I, when I saw my dad's name on the caller ID, I thought, what's the matter? Like, is someone in the hospital? Like, my parents are 75. Like, there's some reality. My brain goes places. You know what my dad called? See how I was doing. He knew Kim was away, right? Well, well, that's weird. Why would we do that? Because that's what family does. And in my brain, I'm just weird, right? That was one of the biggest things I had to adjust to of just what earthly family is like when I married Kim. And Rob would probably say the same thing about uh, Christina, man. You came into a very different experience for me anyway of what family was like. And so I think we're tempted to define uh, what the scriptures call us. That's family, because we're in Christ together if we trusted in him. And we have a really big struggle when we look at our earthly family. We, we try to kind of bring that definition in here to define what church family is like. That's probably the, the opposite way we're supposed to do it. Like I know there are some that when we sing the song, Good, Good Father, you don't like that. Because dad wasn't good. And those moments, I, I want to just try to call you up. Look, this is defining the greatness of how good God is, our Heavenly Father. Your dad may have tanked at it, and I'm sorry. But, but don't allow that to be what defines how you look at your Heavenly Father. And so the same thing is true as here. As much as I don't know one of my cousin's names, I have four cousins, I don't know one of their names, right? So I don't have a tight-knit family, and, and I can go for months without talking to my siblings, and I'm sure they're fine, and I think they probably think I'm fine, and I am fine. I can't allow how I kind of view that to be how I view this here. And to some extent, I need to soften my heart to my own natural family because I've been softened by the gospel. That calls me to, look, you're part of a family now. You're bonded. You've got deep roots. It's not just founded in our proximity to each other. Right? We're not just family because we live in the seacoast area. But what makes us family is founded in Christ. Verse 3 again said, And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. See, true fellowship for the life of the follower of Jesus is seen really in the perfect union of the Father and the Son, Jesus. It's established there. It's on display for us, right? The Trinity, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, perfect unity, operating in perfect um, Dependence upon each other, perfect union with each other. That's the example we have of what true family looks like. We don't fully understand it. It blows our minds to some extent. Like, how is there a three in one? How is it the same but different? I don't understand it. Right? But we trust it. That's our depiction of family. Think about Jesus' life on earth. Right? A lot of times his disciples would get up and they'd say, Where's Jesus? And because you got to read it, you saw that he went off to pray spend time with dad that's the model we have for us that family is unique and it's tight-knit it's perfect in union and harmony 
So what does that have to do with us? Well, listen to John's words in John 5, 15, 5 in his gospel writing. This is Jesus talking. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So John's writing here, again, remains consistent, doesn't it, from the gospels till now. A remaining in Christ brings about much fruit. Why? Because he is the vine. He is the one that perseveres. He is the one that preserves us. He is the one that both establishes us and keeps us. And he calls us into fellowship with him. And as we remain in him, as we see him, as we hear him, as we touch him, we are growing in him, and our fellowship with him and also each other is strengthened. And it's because of the fellowship that we have with God the Father that we can have fellowship with each other, rooted in Christ. I hate sermon titles, I'll be honest with you. I don't like like the thing to try to figure out what to call this thing, and I have to do it for our website. It goes on there. It has to have a title. All right? But today is just simply union with Christ. Right? A union, a, a joining with Christ. And when we're in Christ, we are joined in with him. Right? When that happens, we have to remind ourselves that this does not bring about right, independence. There's temptation to think that, that when we're in Christ, when we're, we're brought to greater independence, but rather it's the exact opposite. Salvation reveals that we're actually greatly dependent on somebody besides ourselves. Salvation, the idea that, that, that we need to trust in Jesus, like he needs to come to save us, it revealed that we actually are very dependent people. As much as we want to be independent, we want to be go-getters and entrepreneurial and, and kind of problem solvers, and those are all good traits and qualities and characteristics. But when it comes to our spiritual life, man, we actually are very dependent. We're very dependent on God. At least we're called to be. See, the beauty of Christ as grace shows that we've got to have dependency on Christ. That union that's founded in Him. And when we are unified in Christ, we are uniquely linked in the gospel. Then we have unique fellowship with each other. See, John begins his entire writing here to draw to a relational value to his audience that's established with the union in Christ. Why does John want us to know this? Why does he think fellowship with Christ and each other is so valuable? Look at verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. It's thought that our joy could also be interpreted as uh, your joy. Ancient writings show both. So that our joy may be complete. You have fellowship with Christ when you trusted in him. And you have fellowship with each other because you've trusted in him. It's like you got a membership that you never paid for. You're part of the family now. You've been adopted. You've been brought in. You are one. We are united. Why? What impact should this have on you? Your joy should be made complete in this. So what does that tell you? That whatever temptation you and I have to live an independent Christian life is a bad thing. 
that God calls us to be intertwined together, woven together as family would be woven together. And what happens out of that? Our joy is made complete in that. Now, John has numerous purposes. He reveals those kind of statements throughout his writing. But this is one of the primary reasons he's writing right now, that our joy would be complete. That in remembering our fellowship with God the Father and each other, our joy is complete. Why is it complete? Because you're not by yourself. As much as you might claim to be an introvert and claim that you just kind of need your alone time, you are left to just your own devices. Most of us are problematic, if not destructive. Does that make sense? Like, like, again, if I'm just the only voice that's ever speaking into my life, if that goes long enough, I'm typically problematic in my own life, if not destructive. Like, I can easily, I did easily justify a bag of jelly beans in like two days. <laughs> Kim bought it for me, and then she left town. So I just crushed those things. Right? That's just a, a, maybe a simple example that, man, and if I'm left, like, I don't have great willpower with that. I'm not interested in becoming diabetic anytime soon. But if I were just to trend out that in my own life and no one ever said, hey, you might want to stop that. If no one ever cared for me just in a simple, practical way, the, the end would be a, a pretty bad result. And that's a trivial example, right? But I'm talking about deeper things, too. Right? That, that if we are left to our own just rationale, our own reasoning, like if, if we have de- depression tendencies and we're the only voice speaking into our own minds, it's dangerous. And often it's not well-founded. I mean, it's often not rational truth that's being spoken into our minds, by ourselves even. And so we're, we're willing to t- kind of take a false reality and think it's a reality all of a sudden. I'm not good enough. I'll never be happy again. No one could love me. And we begin to believe, I think, just lies if we're the only one allowed to speak to ourselves. I think that John wants to be reminding his people that their joy is complete because you're not supposed to be by yourself. There's a reality, too, that for the believer in Christ, you're never alone. In Christ, you're never alone. So, so practically speaking, in those moments of darkness that you and I might have, this a mental thought, you're not alone. Now, for some of us, in that moment, that's scary. Right? We kind of have that, oh, oh no, God's here. Right? We get nervous about that. Listen, even though you won't ever say your struggle to God, he already knows it. <laughs> He's God. So if you're embarrassed or concerned about, about God knowing that habit, that sin, that destructive nature, God already knows it. And, and he wants to walk through you, through, through with you in that situation. And in Christ, we're never alone. So in that moment when we feel like we're alone, we're not alone. So we can cry out to the one that says you're not alone. But you're also called something else. You're called the church. In Christ, you are called the church. Ecclesia. 
a body of faithful people. That's what you're called if you're in Christ. We know that culture shifted, and even it's shifting out again, right? But you know, this is church. We always have thought about that, just historically speaking. It's a building. In the last five or six years in church culture, that's shifting out. We're kind of breaking out of that, which is a good thing, because I believe we're taking on more of our identity, that, that we're the church, that we're God's people. That's uniquely given to us. That's part of what it means to be in fellowship. So what difference does all this make? Well, we are a people bonded together in Christ. So what does that mean? That if you claim Christ today, you've authentically trusted in him. And honestly, I, I say that phrase all the time, and that's on purpose. Because you know what that makes you have to do? Defend your stance that you are a Christian. Even if it's only to yourself. So if you claim Christ, well, yeah, I do. Okay. Like, I say it that way on purpose, just so you know. I'm a little bit sarcastic, a little bit weighty on you. It's on purpose. I want you to think. I want me to think. If I claim Christ, what difference does this make to me? Well, yeah, I claim Christ. Okay, well, if you do, this is not a list of optional things given to us. This is a list of commands given to us, instructions given to us for our good. Right? And if I claim Christ, then my ears should perk up right now. What difference does this make? We are a people bonded together in Christ. Therefore, we have to be a people who live with that reality. What does that mean? I've said before that this, God's family, is an amazing witness to our community. It's an amazing example when they see people, perhaps very little outwardly things in common, bonded in a deep love for one another. It's fascinating. I don't understand it. The local church, made up of generation brackets, made up of socioeconomic brackets, made up of different race brackets, all coming together on a Sunday morning, as is our kind of routine here, together. This isn't normal. This isn't human. Humans, you know what we tend to do? Stay with what we know and what we feel most comfortable with. And we don't let the break out of it. It's true. We're hardwired. I think it's a broken hardwiredness to some extent, but it's just how we are. We like what we like. So you can invite me to go to Burger King, but no thank you. Not interested. I don't like Burger King. We stay with what we know. We stay with what we like. And that breaks into people. We don't go where we don't feel comfortable. We feel out of our zone, out of our element. We're not going to say much. We're, we probably actually will just decline the invite altogether. This is fascinating to me. You fascinate me. Because you're here. And if I really start to like kind of get into deep things for you, politically, okay, Man, we'd, ha- we'd have a whole different variety of things here. What do you think about our current situation financially as a country? What do you think about globalism? What do you think about the wall? I start asking these questions. We'd, we'd have all different things here. And you can have opinions about that. You can have convictions even about that. But to some extent, 
that can't be what defines you. You might be a citizen of this country. As one pastor said, a country that we think has figured out how to just do life the best so far. But this is not our kingdom. Man, we've got a heavenly kingdom. And that is what fascinates me, that you are here. If you claim Christ today, you're part of a heavenly kingdom. So we watch, I watch conversations happen between like a 10-year-old and a 60-year-old, and it fascinates me. It fascinates me because it doesn't make sense. Because a 60 and 70-year-old typically is not going to listen to the, the, the rhetoric of a 10-minute right, monologue of a 10-year-old. But you do. Why do you do that? Because you have fellowship. Because you have family. It's fascinating and unique. So we as a people, we've got to be a people who understand our calling. Our calling as God's people. A people who are rooted together in the faithfulness of God. A people who are meant, I believe, to experience the richness and fullness of Christ, just as John did. Like you and I, if we're in Christ, you're meant to experience, I mean that word in its truest form, to experience a fullness of Christ. Right? What did John, what did he say? Which we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, and looked upon, and have touched with our hands, concerned with all of it. Christ is meant to be cognitive. I think it's meant to be emotional. I think it's meant to be spiritual. I think it's meant to be all those things. That's why for some, music just evokes an emotion response. That's God hardwired in you. And God is meant to be the one that captures all these things. So church, I have to ask, and I have to ask myself, would you listen for him? Would you think about Christ? Would you seek to understand who he is and his word more and more and more? That we would live as a people who are in fellowship with a holy God. And because of that, we are in fellowship with each other. Like there is the expectation that's on you and me. I think according to scripture, that we're supposed to be intimately engaged in each other's lives. We're supposed to be. Now you can evaluate whether you're willing to do that or not. But I can point to scriptures that actually command us and call us to do that. So if we claim to be Christians today, a constant question we have to ask ourselves is like, okay, what do I do with this now? How am I living in fellowship with God? How is that kind of resonating in with me? How, am I maturing in Him? And how am I living in fellowship with other believers? And notice I didn't say State Street people. <laughs> like you have as much in common with a believer right now in Texas as you do with a believer in China. Because the very baseline, you have Christ in common. That's fascinating. It's fascinating. It's what unifies us. It's what's willing to say, you know what? We may not agree politically. That's okay. We may not agree about the wall. That's okay. We may not agree about this or that. That's okay. I might, not, I might not lessen my conviction. I'm going to listen to you, though, because I care about you. I'm not going to listen and try to convince you of my view, though we can have a conversation. And at the end, we can agree to disagree, and that's okay. 
because we're rooted in Christ together. Like our fellowship is in Christ together. And our lives are rooted in the truth of Scripture together. Living with joy made complete comes from being rooted not in our circumstance, not in our perspective, but in the fellowship with Christ and that which we have with each other. Like fellowship, life together, life in community is meant to be part of what makes our joy complete as evidence of the fellowship we have with Christ. How are, you, how are we doing that? You've got to figure that out. There's opportunities here at State Street to do that. Gospel community is a great way. We've got a couple of men's group and women's group that will be starting up in the next month. Right? All opportunities for you to just develop deeper. But you know what? It does not take a church-sanctioned activity. Like, you can ask somebody into your house for dinner. The church doesn't have to say it's okay. Like, I don't, I don't want to be involved with that. <laughs> I've got enough things in my life, right? You want to get coffee with somebody? Get coffee with somebody. It, it may be that you have to step out of that comfort spot. I don't usually go to that place. I, oh, you drink coffee at White Heron? Oh, I don't go to White Heron. Like, well, well, I do, okay, because the Wi-Fi is good. All right? So if we want to have coffee, we're going to go to White Heron. I know, Lils, I'm sorry, you know, but it's in Maine. Uh, it's so far away, right? But I'd, be, but I'd go to Lil's if you want to go to Lil's. But why? Because the fellowship matters to me. The coffee's better one place than the other, but I'll still drink it other places because the fellowship's important, right? Perhaps you know that Christ reminds us, look, lay down some of these things and be bonded together with each other because like it or not, if you're in Christ, you already have fellowship with each other. You're part of the family. And that's encouraging. And that's exciting. And today, you and I are part of the family. Let's pray. God, I, I believe that you have to, to weave this within our lives in a unique way. I believe that this is a truth that we're reminded of today, that, that we have union and fellowship with you, and that brings us to fellowship and family with those who are also rooted in Christ, but, but we've got to pray and think through of, of how we're to respond to this. But Lord, I know this, we are called to respond to this. And so I pray for wisdom on how to do that and for a, a willingness to say yes to the Spirit's leading and work as we work out being united as a family, founded in Christ. Amen.